So we're starting on number 279. The senses of sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch are all separate suggestions of God. This is Master speaking. Separate suggestions of God, all of our senses. Master says, I can disconnect them one by one. I used to do that as a boy. I came to realize that this is all God's movie, true not only to the senses of sight and sound as movies are, but also to the senses of smell, taste, and touch. For hours, I practiced disconnecting the senses one by one by withdrawing the energy from them and bringing it back again until I'd gained full control over the suggestions they gave to the mind. Isn't that just fascinating? I mean, to just... You know, the the picture of reality that that whole statement suggests is so radical from our everyday experience. We just so take for granted that what we're experiencing is what it appears to be. First of all, he calls your senses suggestions from God. And then he emphasizes that it's just your brain. He, he, he taught his brain to not respond to it. Full control over the suggestions they gave to the mind. For hours I practiced disconnecting the senses one by one by withdrawing the energy from them and bringing it back again until I'd gained full control over the suggestions they gave. So we, we have this experience feeling the weight of the book and Master says that it's just a possibility. It's a suggestion. It's not really a fact. And the only reason I feel it is because my brain is accustomed to to having this experience and interpreting it a certain way. So if I could gain control of my inner energy, I just, it wouldn't, I wouldn't experience it like this. I wouldn't feel it. There would be no connection between our hands, so to speak, and our brain, it, and, to, it, to, and that it's all under our control. I mean, that's just such a higher level than just renouncing the experience. It's just simply not having the experience, just dissolving it. As a boy, he practiced until he could do it all the time. Yes, Chris? It's so fascinating that he talks about giving energy to the senses as what's animating them rather than that the energy is coming from the outside in that you have to give the energy for them to work. You have to commit yourself to it. No, that's actually a very good point. Well, you can think of it in, if you think of it as directional, which is because a lot of people give a tremendous amount of energy to the sense of taste, let's say. They're just very involved. I, I had this very unusual experience when we were one year... Uh, just for the fun, I'll try to think what year it would have been. About 1978, 79. From Ananda Village, Swami Ananda was introducing the superconscious living a method at a huge program in, in San Francisco at the Palace of Fine Arts. And to, in preparation for that, we sent out teams of teachers from Ananda Village, six teams that went out sequentially to, I think, like five cities so you would go for one week, but then the next week someone would come in the same sequence. So we actually gave like a five-week series on all the aspects of community. It was really great fun. 
And then we had a support team, so there were people who were the speakers and then the support team, and we got about 70 people at Ananda Village involved. It was a great, it was a great thing. I happened to travel on one of those trips with, with this couple that I really didn't know at all. Both of them were portly, and both of, <coughs> both of them were very dedicated to eating, so that their weight was a reflection of their interest in life. And we drove just around the Bay Area, Northern California, just really within a, a couple of hours of where we are sitting now. And the two of them, especially he, would talk about the cities they were, and he would remember the restaurants they'd eaten in. <laughs> and he would sometimes remember the meals they had. <laughs> and it was just, and they, he wasn't at all embarrassed by it, even though I was, I was embarrassed for him. You know, to this big portly man to be t talking to his wife about the restaurants they'd eaten in, but it just seemed natural to him. To me, it seemed uh, a little outside of anything. I mean, I'm, I don't like to skip my meals. I'm a person who has to eat, but uh, not, not like that. But look how much energy he, he had given to it, both, to the, both the first time to committing his memory to it, to finding pleasure in going back and reliving the experiences. I, I, I have a friend who used to like to tell me about really wonderful meals she'd had that when I wasn't present. At one point I finally said to her, you know, I probably wouldn't have been very interested even if I was there. Believe me, I'm really not interested in hearing about something that you enjoyed when I wasn't even there. It just doesn't mean anything to me unless it... You know, I, I cook enough that... But it was just like, we give energy to it. We give energy to the dress that you saw, even, you know, to the sunset. So that would be a directional attitude toward it. it as opposed to merely eating because the body needs to be eat, or be like Gandhi and mix all the different flavors together so that you don't even have any pleasurable taste. You, you're... You're not doing what Master said, which is cutting off the sensation altogether, but at least you're withdrawing energy from the concept. Um, so you can see how that would work. So you could withdraw it far enough that it becomes a matter of indifference to you. People who are perfectly celibate are just completely indifferent um, to the sense of touch. Swamiji said when the, when the entire idea of sexuality left him, he stopped being ticklish. And he just sort of said that. Isn't that interesting? He said it was sort of like, on some level, the feeling of uh, being touched just changed for him. I, I just, he just sort of put that out as like, isn't this interesting? He said, I used to be somewhat ticklish. I'm not at all anymore. And he, he correlated them. But that would be withdrawing energy from the sense of touch. So it would just be, there would be no response to touch anymore. Interesting, isn't it? So, and, and just, it's, it's stories like that that make me, I mean, on Sunday, this last Sunday, I was talking about the possibility of God-realization in this lifetime and all the different aspects of that. But it's stories like this that make me think, uh, I think there's a ways to go. <laughs> I mean, just the thought of having that kind of mastery is so far outside just even the realm of possibility, I don't know how to think about it. Pardon me? No, I do understand. But what I, what I am saying is, 
let's not lower the mountain so that we'll feel like we're standing on a higher place. You know, that just, it, it's important to just really hear what kind of control is possible so that we don't, in fact, kind of rest on our laurels thinking we've accomplished something because we're not as miserable as we used to be. And we have a few intuitions every once in a while. I'm not making light of what we have accomplished and who we are, but still there's this realm of yoga. It, it's also true, and this, is, this just intrigues me. I read a few letters between uh, Rajasi and Master. And in one of the Master is making suggestions about things Rajasi can do and that he would enjoy experiencing while he's meditating in samadhi. It's like, it's sort of like, uh, it, it just sort of opened this whole other world, like once you are in this state, which one thing, which we, we tend to think of as, well, that's the end of the story. He's giving um, Rajasi all these suggestions about things he might enjoy. Sort of like, you know, you're going to Switzerland, maybe you would enjoy this city or that lake or this restaurant. He's telling Rajasi that he can try these different things. And Lahiri Mahashaya, who spent, you know, all those uh, years just sitting in meditation, never leaving, hardly ever leaving his seat, hardly ever leaving the room, but he kept a diary of his experiences and, he, and his experiments. It wasn't just his experiences, it was his experiments. He was experimenting with all these <clears throat> things you can do once you're in cosmic consciousness. <clears throat> that diary is not yet readily available in English. There's a book that it purports to be some of it, but it's a very confusing book. Um, my, I had the, the realization when I uh, read that book and tried to sort of understand what it was about, was that Rajasi was, was serving when he was meditating. He wasn't merely enjoying himself. He wasn't merely indulging himself. He was serving, of course, self-evidently because he's inspiring his disciples and he's helping his disciples. But I also felt like among the reasons why, perhaps, why that diary is not readily available is that it's for a higher age. That there'll come an age when this work is so established. I mean, now we have to work so hard because we're, we're planting the, we're building the edifice. But the day will come when, when it's a much higher age and then Lahiri Mahashaya's diary of, of all the things we can do and how we can continue to develop ourselves once we're in cosmic consciousness will become relevant. Even, you know, much more than it is now. Perhaps. This is me just speculating. But it also, again, it's... I mean, I never crossed my mind. What was Rajasi doing when he was sitting there in that high state of consciousness? You know, was he... It, it, from, to, to my mind, at least, it was an end point where everything just... Whatever, whatever it became. But to think that you can travel and do things and... It, it's all delightful to contemplate and it makes me at least feel very humble and extremely interested in the future and recognizing the limitations of the present. Who knows? It's hard to say. Swamiji tells of uh, a disciple, of Master, a woman. It might have been Miramata, but I'm not entirely sure, so I don't I want to say exactly. But one of them who, uh, it, it was in... 
Maybe it was in our Sunday reading. That she, Swami said he knew for a fact that she never meditated more than half an hour at a time. And Master said she was second only to Gyanamata in realization. That she was liberated. Quote, she got there by attunement. So she was serving and, and loving her guru, but it didn't translate into, into samadhi states, or at least not apparently. Again, once again, it just it moves you back from the sort of glib and convenient explanations, and it certainly moves me back from the idea that anybody can measure anybody's spirituality, least of all your own. And, and the idea of comparing yourself with other people, what are you comparing? You know, what do we even know about what people are doing? We have no idea. We have absolutely no idea. Swami made a remark about um, this woman named Bella, who died of cancer. She was Maria's sister. The two of them both died, you know, ten years apart. But after Bella died, Swami commented, he basically said... Uh, most of her never really incarnated. Most of her just remained in the astral world, is how he put it. It's just that she, she just brought as much of her consciousness here as she needed to get along. And her sister, who knew her very well, Maria, who was still living, she sort of said, how did Swami know that? Because she knew it. Maria knew it because they were so close. And she just sort of was in, intrigued that Swami was able to perceive that. But he said that was definitely Bella. She just wasn't interested. So she lived and did things and was very good at what she did, but mostly she just hung out somewhere else. You know, I... Bring a little bit of it with you here. That's what he said she did. I know. I don't have any idea. I'm just quoting. <laughs> no, but it, it all, it's all part of this do your best and just leave the rest in God's hands because you just don't know. I mean, one always likes to... When I first got on the spiritual path, I don't know where I read it, but it said that there are several different ways to attain um, liberation, and one of them is that it will come suddenly in your sleep, which is the one I opted for. I thought that was the best one. <laughs> I mean, I knew I was joking, but still it was just like... Sure, if we can just do that one, why don't we just do that one? Which is, what do we know? That's how I've always felt about it. I just don't know. They know, I don't. Their problem, not mine. All right. We know that we want it, though. That's, that's what keeps us going. All that I'm really trying to uh, 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 promote is relaxation, confidence, in God's plan and, and a, a, just a, a complete release of anxiety. I mean, I just, so many people constantly, oh, I'm so worried, I don't, I don't think I'm doing enough. I, I, you know, I just, and like the big issue is just how tense you are. It's not really the things you're not doing. It's the incredible nervousness that has been created out of this self-defined measuring system, which is probably wacky. You know? And even if it were accurate, what is the solution to it? It's definitely not, you know, uh, manic self-concern. That is like about as opposite from spiritual freedom. So you are really terrible at it. Well, try to be a little better, and if you can't, just 
accept reality. Reality doesn't change for your worrying about it. Swami used to try to always explain to me that guilt was not the same as an actual response. It was not, guilt was not a constructive response. I, he would, he, I just, I didn't even understand the idea. Guilt was so deeply ingrained in me. I thought I was actually doing something when I was just feeling terrible. Wasn't that a sign of my sincerity that I felt so ghastly so much of the time? He, tr- just, he, he tried so hard. It took me a very long time to finally realize that all I was doing was just falling into a deeper pit of ego in the name of self-castigation about not being good enough and that somehow the result of that would be that I would get better. But all I became was more and more self-preoccupied, which is the antithesis. It's like the drunk who was just sure that God was going to come. That's that long story that they tell about Narada going out and looking for you know, true devotees, and he thinks that the anchorite is the true devotee, but the best devotee out there is the kind of drunk guy who's always chatting with God. And when God challenges him, the the sort of seemingly foolish one is the one who really just totally believes that God loves him and that whatever his foibles, it'll all come out right in the end. And the anchorite just proves to be in it for the glory (laughs) and proves not to have that kind of everlasting faith. Because you see, when we constantly negate ourselves and negate our worth, well, first of all, we're, we're, who, what we're insulting is the divine. We're just declaring, one, that God is so mean-spirited and small-minded that he's going to judge us as harshly as we're judging ourselves. It's not much of a compliment, is it? You know? When you really think about it, who are you insulting? You're saying, well, God only loves me if I'm really, really good. And because I'm not really good, clearly he's rejected me. It's an insult. I had a friend who just, I would tell her, you know, I'll take care of it. I'm happy to do it. I'm really glad to help you in this way. No, no. And then, then it would, we would all go on like that. And then she'd come back again with, oh, no, you mustn't. It's too much. It's, you know, I'm asking too much of you. Maybe I don't have to do it. I finally said, why don't you believe me? You know, why don't you believe that I can actually make a promise and keep it? Why do you think that I didn't mean what I said? Who are you insulting? It's me. You're saying I'm untrustworthy, that I lie to you, that I have no willpower. Oh, you know, it was sort of like everything gets very distorted when we become so self-preoccupied. That's what we're saying. God loves us. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. He loves them, but not me, you know. Everybody else is fine, but I'm not fine. I'm not fine. Who Who are we insulting? And where is the spirituality in that? It's a very serious question. So just be, you know, the whoever you are, but have that faith. I, I was listening myself to the I, the other audio book I have, which is Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him. I'm just enjoying these stories so much. And the story that I was listening to was one called A Calm Heart, and it had many points in it. But the main point was this. Swamiji says... We talk about calming the mind in meditation and we think the mind is the problem. He says it isn't the mind, it's the heart that is the problem. Because reason follows feeling. 
The way we feel is de- what determines how we think. And so if we have restless, anxious, um, self-doubts, uh, anxieties, fears, they happen, they start as a feeling. If there's no feeling involved, it's just an idea that doesn't hold. What makes it hold is because there's a, 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 an unsettled feeling in the heart. And so there's an unsettled feeling in the heart, creates an unsettled feeling in the mind. In my early years of meditation, I learned a lot about myself from noticing what, what distracted me in meditation because I, my self-knowledge was severely limited, to put it mildly. So I would find out when I was meditating that I was angry about something or frightened about something or obsessed with some reality that I had just hadn't noticed. But when I tried to calm my mind, my heart would shoot up these anxieties or realities that my mind would then put into words. Oh, that's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm upset about. Oh, I thought I got over that. I would say to people that what distracts me from my meditation is my meditation because it's the understanding. So, but then Swami added in the story that I was reading, uh, listening to, where he said, that's why devotion is, is so essential for meditation. Because when we have a devotional relationship with God and we sit to meditate and the heart goes to love, then it calms down. And when the, the heart calms down, the mind calms down and then we can concentrate. Because love is what lifts all that away. In the Bible it says, Paul says, perfect love casts out all fear. And restlessness is almost always, or is always, in some way, comes down to fear. Fear that I will get this, fear that I won't get that, you know, just one way or another. But when you're loving, I mean, just think of the experiences we've had when we're just so full of love. We just get so happy. I mean, joy is the, is the consequence of that, or the joy gives us the experience of love. The other night when we were having the, that, this party in this room here, it was just, there was just, there was so much love in the room. People were just, and, and as a result, there was so much joy in the room. And the minds were just on what we were doing. You know, we weren't, we weren't distracted. What we were doing, a lot of it was almost trivial. But it wasn't because it was such an expression of, of devotion to friendship, to each other, to the work that we're doing together. And so when we can meditate like that, but if we've created a God who dislikes us because we missed our Kriya that morning and we sit to meditate and all, we can, all our heart gives us is that now we're being rejected because we aren't good enough, where's the love in that? And what kind of a God would reject us? You see? It's, it's all, it all gets very, it's very interesting. And that's where meditation has to be a relationship. Otherwise, it's impossible. You just can't, you can't calm the heart. You can suppress it with willpower. But sooner or later, it busts out. You know, and you have to really, you have to really move through it. And love is the fastest way to do it. Devotion. That's why mass And attunement, which comes with it. I mean, attunement is, a, is love because it's wanting. <clears throat> it's the desire to be aligned with that vibration. 
And the, and the desire to be aligned with that vibration is because you long for it. And that's a, another way of saying you love it. A friend who had a lot of trouble meditating, you know, she worried about it a lot. I said, but you love the vibration of Ananda. You never miss an event, and you're right in the middle of everything, and you just, you absolutely love everything about Ananda. I said, that's, that's what matters. I mean, yes, it's nice to meditate. In fact, it's very good to meditate. It'll accelerate everything you're trying to do. But in the meantime, look how much love you have for this path. You, just, you could just turn everything in the right direction. Everything else will follow in relatively short order, is what Swami told me. <laughs> I've contemplated that phrase, relatively short order. But if you have devotion, everything else will follow in relatively short order. Compared to eternity or compared to one incarnation, I'm not quite sure <laughs> what he meant. <laughs> okay, any questions or thoughts? And in the meantime, we can be like Master. We can practice withdrawing and then adding the energy to our senses. And we can practice putting our hands on hot stoves and things. I've never done this, but surprising number of people, maybe some of you have done that fire walking thing where I don't, I don't, I, I'm surprised how many people I know have actually done it. Where they, it's, I don't know if it's still popular, where you go out somewhere and they set up this whole burning coal thing and then they, you, you just practice and then very ordinary people can just walk across the burning coals and their feet don't burn. And like, where does that come from? I, I mean, I know that, but what is the power that is so accessible to so many people? Have you ever done it? Yeah, you were the only one I thought in the room. I? No, I, I'm, I'm afraid I would burn my feet. I have no faith in all that I could do. it. But I am surprised by the people who've told me that they have. And just somehow they said they just became persuaded they could do it, and they did. But that's, you know, this just sort of gives you a clue of, of how accessible shifting reality could be. The brain just did, just not, did not register that your bare feet are on hot coals. Howie, Sowie, I'm glad I'm on this path. Every time I hear things like that, I think, oh, thank you, God, that you don't make us do that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Number 280. Someone had asked the master to pose for a photograph. He obliged, then commented with a gay laugh, everyone likes to see his own picture. <laughs> the Lord made it so that we couldn't see our own faces. I mean, just that, that's an interesting comment, isn't it? And we all get to see each other's face, but we never get to see our own. And when we do get to see it, it's static. We don't get to see it as it looks when the energy is flowing through it. I suppose you can watch videos and so on now, but even still, it's not really, it's not the same. Only others get to see them, our own faces. In that, in that way, we wouldn't find out too soon. But now with photography, we can see ourselves finally as others see us. And with video, we see it even more. That expression, find out too soon, how often I heard Master use it. It would be wise in trying to understand the great movie that is life to realize that its pluses and minuses are carefully balanced. It is no simple nursery tale or B-grade movie where the heroes all wear white hats and the villains are all dressed in black ones. In Paramhansa Yogananda's book, The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam explained, 
In his explanation of stanza 73, we read, Is life so difficult to understand? Well, of course it is. <laughs> if it were easy to grasp the drift and purpose of this spectacle, how well would that speak for the skill of the dramatist? The divine playwright has concealed the direction of his plot, which in itself is straightforward, behind endless subplots and complexities. He has cloaked the wonderful ending of the play behind a network of confusing hints and plausible-seeming but false explanations for the events taking place. Plausible-seeming but false explanations for the events taking place. Doesn't that just sum it up? <laughs> it is a story wrought with incalculable skill, its true purpose concealed with sublimest artistry behind myriads of tragic and comic secondary plots. <sighs> then Swami says, God does not want us to find out. God does want us to find out. The sooner the better. However, he doesn't want to clobber us with miracles. To become worthy of knowing him, we must develop our own discrimination. Well, it's nice to know that, you know, the master himself thought that it was kind of, I don't know. This is, some of the things that master said are just so confusing, you hardly even know what to think about it. I mean, you start with the fact that he put us behind our own faces. So we can't really see ourselves interacting with the world. We get it only by reflection. I mean, that's, that's the beginning. We don't recognize, the, 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 we don't get to see the expressions that go across our faces. We don't get to objectively deal with it. That's why we, get, we have friends and relationships, because people feed things back to us that we didn't know. And that's often why our relationships are so tempestuous and often negative is because people fight, feed back to us things we didn't know and that we just don't want to know. This one woman I knew, she really, moody, was almost the definition of who she was. She got married for a short time and said afterwards, I never knew, she said, I know this is going to sound silly, she said, but I never knew I was moody. Wow. I, one of the stories that I wrote for that book about Swami I had, person had given me a story and I made reference to the fact that they were inclined to be moody. Later Swami told me that the person objected to my saying that. I said, you're telling me they don't know that they're moody? He, Swami said very diplomatically, apparently, that's how he put it, apparently that's how they feel. It was just like, there you are. We, we can't see ourselves. It's not just that we're on the other side of our faces. It's that we just don't know. And so that's one of the things that makes this, so, makes this world so confusing. And then he just talks about how, you know, this is the, this is the point where people don't get onto the spiritual path. This, this is the question that causes them never, want, never to want to be on the path and not even to want to believe in God. Because you think he should have made it easier. You know, you, you hear all these crazy explanations like this, like he doesn't want you to find out too soon, that you have to really raise your energy, and, and he, he confuses you with subplots. Master said at one point, because one thing follows another, 
we mistakenly assume that one thing causes another. And you just sort of think about that like, well, it sure seems like one thing causes another, but he's talking about, you know, karma from a long distance, and I don't even know what he's talking about. But seemingly plausible, you know, subplots, and so many of them, you know, once again, it's just this long process of gradually, I think anguishing monotony is the only real explanation, where we just have seen it a lot of different times. And so we, we recognize it at the start, where it's going to be at the end. I know a lot of you have had experiences like that, and that was my experience in my, my childhood and my teens, which is I was so bewildered because all of the goals that people wanted me to pursue, I could tell that when I got there, I, I wouldn't want to be there. And, but it paralyzed me. I was just paralyzed by that fact. It, it, it just left me with nothing. But that's why I found the spiritual path so early. Because I had already been through a lot of those things. Later on when we had to go through litigation and when the, when the whole, when Vananda went through all those years of it, um, I found that if I walked, I have, I have a good mind, I have a good legal mind and I worked a lot with the lawyers and I, I have a, an instinct that way. When I would go into a room where there were a lot of law books, no matter how energetic I felt when I walked in, I would immediately practically fall asleep. It would just like, I don't know what it was, but I would just get so tired. I mean, really, like I'd have to put my head down. Not that I ever had to read law books. I wasn't that far into it. But still, it was amazing to me just how crushed I felt even to have to be next to those law books. But it was clear that it's something that I'd done in many incarnations. But you've been to the end of it. It was one of those plausible-seeming subplots Oh, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what's going to make me happy. This is what I'll do. Now, bear in mind, you can do anything and be happy if your consciousness is right. And we do have a lot of karma that we have to act out. But you, you do it with, it depends on your, your consciousness. Am I doing this because I know it's my destiny and I have to fulfill it? Or am I doing this because I believe at the end of it, I'll be happier than I am now? Complicated. So, is life so difficult to understand, Master asks. Well, of course it is. (laughs) But then he says, The divine playwright has concealed the direction of his plot, which is in itself straightforward. That's the the line that I like. Because the direction of his plot is God-realization. It's very straightforward. But it isn't because of all the subplots. Fascinating, isn't it? Any comments or thoughts? Protestations? So Master himself said that he argued with Divine Mother over this. Uh, That's another one of those. What is he doing when he's in cosmic consciousness? He had an argument with Divine Mother that people had to suffer so much to learn. Why do you have to teach your children through suffering, he said. And the other remarkable one was when he had that huge samadhi in 1948, in September, I believe, or August 1948. And Divine Mother spoke through his voice. That's how the story is told. It would lasted for three days. 
and Divine Mother took him around creation, and Master said to her, Oh, that's how you do it. <laughs> like, what? What are they talking about? You know, what, what level of consciousness is that from? But there is something just going on where we... And then when we die, everyone who, who dies and comes back says, Oh, it just all becomes suddenly quite clear. And all this, uh, the subplots, or many people say, the subplots just disappear. And they suddenly realize what the whole point of this thing was. Different, completely different. And the point being to recognize that we are instruments of a higher power, we are part of a greater reality, and our purpose is to love. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I don't know why it gets so hard. Anybody know why? All right, number 281. The master had several recordings of Indian devotional songs. One was a song recorded by the famous singer of Bengal, um, Minal Kanti Ghosh. I and several others were listening to it one day with the master. The song describes the devotee praying to the divine mother, Kali asking her to appear before him, dancing all over creation. Afterward, the master exclaimed, As I listened, I was dancing with Kali all over creation. I could hear the music in my soul. Well, that's quite a statement, isn't it? You know? He lived simultaneously on all those planes. We, we, we sort of aspire to it, but he was able... Swamiji did say to us, you know, the freedom that, of consciousness that Master had, even for highly advanced souls, was just so far beyond what most saints have. Swami talked once about Ramana Maharshi versus Yogananda, not in any competitive way or anything like that. But Ramana Maharshi was in, intensely austere. There's even a, a video of, of, you know, him just sitting there in his loincloth, Ramana Maharshi, when Master came to visit. And Master's jovially talking to everyone and arranging everyone for the photograph. And Ramana Maharshi just remains absolutely motionless, you know, with very little clothing on in the way that he was. But it was, it was as Swami explained it, simply that, you know, Master had been in that state of spiritual freedom for so many incarnations that he didn't have to do anything to protect it. It was just so completely natural to him, which again speaks to what I was saying earlier about once you get into that state of consciousness, you develop in that state, which is seemingly what's there because it wasn't like one is more realized than another. It's just that one is more at ease. And he, Swami often said many times how completely at ease Master was, that there was just, he, had, he didn't have to hold any distance between himself and the world. Because wherever he was, it was the same experience. So he hears this woman singing about Kali, and then he just goes into that state. Like Ramakrishna, which of course in the 1800s, he was the most remarkable spiritual person. And he was, he was so expanded, but so natural. And you have that book, The Gospel of Ramakrishna, that M wrote down all the things that were said. And... Uh, this is one that I always remembered and loved. 
there was some kind of a car, uh, spiritual festival happening a few villages over and one of the devotees wanted to rent a boat and that they would all go down to the whatever it was. And Ramakrishna says, oh really, he said, we'll just go there, we'll go to all the trouble and then I'll get there, he said, and I'll just go into samadhi and I'll miss the whole thing. <laughs> He said, perhaps, you know, it's just not worth the trouble. <laughs> I read about uh, a biography of Therese Neumann in the Autobiography of a Yogi Master. talks about her. She was the woman who had the stigmata and experienced the passion of Christ every Friday. But she never ate. And this book is so, it was so lovely because she was just very childlike and happy and completely humble about it. And they, they would often travel. And she would just make fun of them all because they had to stop and eat. And then afterwards they would have to use the bathroom, you know, just all this stuff. And she was completely free of all of it. And she would sort of, in a very natural way, she would sort of lord it over them, you know. <laughs> like they had so many things they had to worry about. And her system was just much better. Just much better. Just forget all about that. You know, it's, it's, it's the, it becomes the natural state. Just remember I... There was that uh, Bakswala Baba that we met up above, uh, Bakswala Baba, above Badrinath. That's what I want to say, above Badrinath, up at 11,000 feet up in the mountains. And he says, he, um, he lived in this little kutir, and we, about 15 of us went to see him in that kutir, just sitting, this little tiny cottage, just looking out at the Himalayas, and he was in silence and he rode in Hindi on a slate board and our guide translated and the, the snow is so deep there that the whole temple closes. They take the image and they take it down to 7,000 feet and they stay, they move the ceremonies down because at 11 and 12,000 feet you just can't be there during the winter. So all the sadhus, all everybody moves down to Josimat or goes somewhere else. But Bakswala Baba does not leave. He stays there. And they call him Bakswala because he has a metal box. And he goes into the metal box so that the animals won't eat his body. And he sits in the box and he goes into a cosmic state and then he goes to be with Babaji in the Himalayas during the winter months. And then his little cabin is buried in snow and when the snow melts he comes back out. The people around there say that he doesn't leave and he doesn't die. So there he is. When Swami Kriyananda asked me, because uh, we met him for the first time, <clears throat> Swami asked us later when he saw Swami in Delhi, what did you think about this man? I said, well, Swami, I was so inspired. It was hard for me to separate the Bhadrinath temple being that high in the Himalayas looking, sitting in this little kutir, looking out at the hills, just, you know, there were so many things going on. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what was what and who was who. And then I raised as a question, I said he was so casual about going into the box and going into cosmic consciousness then going off to be with Babaji. And Swami's answer, I've never forgotten. He said, well, Asha, at a certain point, it's just natural. And I thought, yeah, that's right. It's just natural. I mean, from my perspective, it's miraculous. But from his perspective, it's just what he does. 
you know. I left everything behind when I was 22 and gave my life to Swami Kriyananda, never looked back. And sometimes people sort of think, well, that was really something. And I think, huh? You know, it was just like, it was just there. It was just an opportunity. Of course I did it. Why else would I have done, not have done it? You know, and that was when the people in Bangalore said, what did your parents think? And I said, it never occurred to me to ask them. <laughs> then I had to say, I'm American, you know, because I didn't want it to be. But I put those two things together later and realized when I, especially when I was sitting in India with all these, you know, super family-oriented householder people and I just talked about just turning my back on everything, going out to live in this ashram and never thinking about it. Oh, well, it was just natural to me to do that, of course. Why wouldn't I have done it? And Bakswala Baba just, it's natural for him to do that. And Therese Nuiman, it's natural for her not to eat. For Master, he hears, he hears about being with Kali, so he just goes off you know, goes off into that reality. Swami said when he was a child, he lived more in the astral world than this world. When he would fall asleep at night, remember he says in, in his biography, this light would appear, and then he would stare into the light, and it would expand until his whole body disappeared into that light. And he thought everyone went to sleep that way. He thought that's how you go to sleep. It just was, he didn't know that was unusual. He was much older before he found out that not everybody did that. But later, very interestingly, he said, when he met Master and learned, got Kriya and started meditating, then when he was nine, he became a little nervous. He got sick, he had fever. But what he also said was he began to realize that he was really out of step with the world. And he saw, he said it, it was especially manifested between him and his father. Not antagonism, but just such totally different worlds that Swami said he became anxious and he felt he had to adjust to this world. And he became ill and he was sent away from home. But he felt this desperate need to adjust. So he said he sort of blocked that experience. But then when he met Master and started meditating, he said he went, his phrase was, I went right back into that state. And he said, I love this part. It was the same moment in super-consciousness, there is no time. No time had passed. I mean, these are just, tonight is all about things that, who knows what this really means. But, but no time had passed because if time is this wheel that moves on the outside and super-consciousness is the center point of that wheel, when you come in from the edge, you're coming into a single point, no matter where you're coming in from. So he, he came in as a young child, as a baby even, to this point. And then time passed on that wheel, and then he came in again. But when he came right back to the center, he came back to exactly the same center. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? I guess that's what happens when we die. We see that the subplots were nothing but. Okay, let's take a break. Ready? Comments or questions? Or are we just rolling? We're, this is a very odd night, isn't it? Isn't it funny how it comes out? We're just, all, all that we're talking about tonight is stuff I don't understand. Yes, Olga. I want to know details what Divine Mother told. Um, Say again? Say I want to know details what Divine Mother told uh, uh, Yogananda. About what she's doing? Yeah. Well, Do you have that's a nice thing to want, but... <laughs> Apparently, I mean, all that I've ever heard is him say, oh, that's how you do it. 
But you know, the fact of the matter is, we couldn't, I mean, you, it, how could you, you can't put, words are a very, very low medium of communication. Because, we're, I mean, I talk all the time. I use words all the time. And it's just amazing to me what people hear that I, they think I said. You know? And I just, it, it's just the way it is. Because words are so removed from actual communication. I, I tell the story sometime about that experience with Swamiji when I was trying to find, figure out God's will and I told him it's so hard to know what God wants. And he said, no, it's not. That was his exact words to me. No, it's not hard, meaning it's not hard to know. At first, what I heard in my mind was, it's not hard for me to know. Meaning Swami Kriyananda was saying, I can do it easily. What's your problem, girl? And I, I, I ran that tape for a while, but then I remembered that would have been exceedingly rude, and I'd never known him to be rude like that. So I, I concentrated a little more deeply and realized that he'd said, it's not hard to know. Entirely different. But if I had been, if I had even wanted this much to just be angry at him instead of to learn from him, I would have just stuck right with that and just considered him rude and gone on with it because words just give you the freedom to be able to make up what you want. I'll, tell, I'll just tell you another thing funny about words. I was just commenting. This is the time of year when I often help the school with their play by making costumes for like, or arranging costumes for 75 children. Sometimes they have two or three or four costumes. It's a big job. It takes six weeks. I, I, I get, especially when I first started doing it, I become crazed is actually the only word. It goes beyond obsession to absolute madness. I become so absorbed in it. And when I first started doing it, maybe eight or nine years ago, I was enjoying myself and so fascinated that I imagined that all my friends gave a hoot about it, let's say that. And so I was constantly talking about it in my enthusiastic way. Oh, I figured out what to do. You know, the white collar just didn't really look good, but if I just put a little band of orange up there, you know, then it matched the robe and it looks so good. And, oh, you should see what I've done for the angels. I have this little, I mean, I, just on and on and on. And people were courteous to me for a while, and I, it might even have been several years of this. But at a certain point, at one of our informal satsangs, or one of our Tuesday morning satsangs, somehow the dam broke, and everybody in the room started in a very friendly, loving way. It was, I was in the middle of play season, and my sewing machine was in the corner, and the fabric was piled up everywhere. And so they spent maybe 15 minutes teasing me just talking about how impossible I was and how completely uninterested they were in the subject. And it was all good nature, but it went on for some time. But the, the gist was, we're not interested, right? As soon as it stopped, I watched my mind. My subconscious heard that they had been talking about the costumes for the school play. And I started to tell them something about it. <laughs> And the impulse was just coming out of me when a piece of me figured out that something really different was going on and that maybe that wasn't what they wanted. Wow! It was incredibly instructive to me and told me how wild miscommunication happens all the time. 
because all my subconscious took was the part it wanted, which was, I love this subject, and they're interested in it too. Look, they've been talking about it for 15 minutes. <laughs> and it all, the rest of it went past me. Now, that's just the tiny things of this world. <laughs> what could Master say to tell us about how creation is made? Why were we, we are created? Why God's plan is perfect? Why we're all perfectly loved? What possible words could be put on that? It has to be, we have to be, as Vivekananda said, if you want to know why God does what he does, you have to have the level of consciousness from which he does it. And if you don't, then there's no way that you can understand it. Which is why the answer to every question is to do Kriya. Which I, you know, it's interesting how everything ties together. Because if you change your consciousness, then you will perceive the reality. If you just ask to be told, you'll just be given words. And they will or they won't mean anything to you. If you have intuition, those words can communicate something else. But if you have intuition, you don't need those words. Swami Kriyananda sometimes would sort of play with us a little bit, which is, you know, he wouldn't, let me just think how to put this, in small things, but like, what would you like for supper? Oh, use your intuition, you know? What would you like with your tea? Oh, just use your intuition. And he didn't do that all the time because he wasn't, you know, he didn't, he wasn't fond of koans. That wasn't his way. But sometimes he would just do that and it, it got to be sort of at the end of his life, his long time housekeeper was named Leela. And there were lots of times where just basically he would just call everyone Leela and you just had to kind of intuit which one he actually meant. But you could. You could just, you could tell. And he, it was sort of half intentional, half not. That the word really was just not what was being said. I had a friend, a very good friend. Words, words weren't, as she said, she really didn't have a, a native language. <laughs> she just didn't have a native language. Language was not her thing. She could speak English perfectly well, but she just didn't like words. But so, so it's sometimes she got better, but there was a time in her life when she just would use almost any words to say what she wanted to say, and often she would say the opposite of what she meant. Just because there were some of the words related to the issue and the little business of which side of the question she was on, it was just too much effort to say it. But I could always tell. I just, I just always knew. You know, we were very in tune with each other. And I would just hear words and I would get the drift and figure out, you know, it's, that's dangerous because after a while you, don't, you can't really tell what's being said and what isn't said. I don't want to exaggerate it. When I listened to Swami talk once, yeah, I mean more than once, that I felt this, but it was one particular experience that happened right here. Um, I, 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 I've told you all that when he would talk, I would try to listen to him word by word. I tried to narrow my focus and, and blank my expectations so that I wasn't anticipating, but that I was just taking what he said. And I, when I was doing that once, I became very conscious of the fact that the first thing he was giving us was a vibration. And then after that, he'd put a word on it because we didn't know how to receive the vibrations unless he put words on them. But the word came after. And it wasn't even concepts. It was just a vibration, which is very, which is, you know, above a concept. 
where you just have a vibration and you just know. It's, it's all, it's... So we, we're, we receive exactly what we're capable of receiving. This is another one of those things back to where I was at the beginning. We just understand what we can understand, which is why we were talking this morning about... I, I first got what, what is now the art and science of Raja Yoga. I got that course first in 1969, but then he rewrote it in 1972. And for many, many years, now I have the nice book. For many years, I had the, it was given out as lessons, and I had this old blue notebook, and I had the, these lessons that were printed. They had coffee stains and tea stains and breakfast and dinner had spilled on them over the course of 35 years. They had my own notes in the margin. I would read those, and there would be entirely new sections. I mean, even despite the fact that I had notated them and commented on them, that was put in when those sections were put in there. I'm sure of it. Because I wasn't, I didn't have the vibration. So I could read the words and even think about them. But it wasn't until... I was on the vibration. Sometimes with Swami's writing, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's just so powerful. I mean, I can't read his books if, for leisure. You know, I can't just leisurely sit down and read one of his books because it, it demands too much of me. I like to read his books, but I have to be in that turn because they're, otherwise they're just words. Brilliant words, sometimes beautiful words, but does that, you know, does that make sense? So, Master couldn't tell us anything because if he did, it would sound like gibberish to us. Or we'd just put a picture here. That's why they don't talk about those things. This poem, Samadhi, is a very uh, rare... I'm pointing for those looking at a camera. We have some of the verses on the wall of this room. Um, It was like it was pointing like there it is. Um, It's very unusual for anyone to have put that much into words. Usually they can't. That's what Ramakrishna would try to explain it, but then he would go beyond it and he couldn't explain it anymore. He would try to explain. He would try to tell people what was happening, but then he wouldn't be able to. Words were just too puny. In the descent of the yugas, when Vyasa would teach us this class about the yugas, they would cons- the modern-day historians considered that civilization, this is the highest point of the yugas, descending down into lower ages, and there's a point here where written language came in and scholars here think that that was the advancement of civilization, but in fact it was the decline. Because prior to that, written language was not needed because people could, could communicate intuitively and could hold all the... Could, they, had a, they had a memory. And there's... I don't know where Biasa gets this, but he always had this quote there that said... But if we write everything down, what will become of our memory? Meaning we will have no capacity to remember anymore because we'll just write it down. And like, what a loss that will be. We won't know things anymore. We'll just write them down. You see how different it is? What is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. It's, it's so fun. I love this path. Any other comments or questions? You know, when I, was, when I started this, I didn't realize how big it was. I hoped, but I didn't know. Now I'm 50 years into it, and I just feel like a child. You know, there's just so many pieces of it that... Turning on and off your senses as a boy, just practicing until you're sent, you can turn them off. 
Yeah, like wouldn't that be nice when you just sit to meditate, you turn off your phone, your computer, and your senses? (laughs) Wouldn't that make it easier? (laughs) But that's what they do. Speaking of Ramana Maharshi, when he left home, he left home I think at 17, he just was studying, and then he realized that the world was a dream, so he walked out the door. I mean, it's the kind of awakening we'd all like to have, but it was a big one, and he just went off, and now, do I have this correct? I look to you, because you know all these things. He found, this, he found this little narrow opening, and he went down into the basement of some temple, and he just sat there and started meditating. It just, like, some moldy, you know, rat-infested place, but he just, nobody even knew it was there. He just slipped through this narrow opening and then just meditated for a very long time. But think about what your reality is if that is natural to you. Just, you know, no, no thought of food, no thought of comfort, no thought of fear of animals, nothing. Just, just think what a state of freedom that would be. Just, I mean, people have psychotic breaks every once in a while, but that's not the same thing, you know, where you just step outside or take drugs and have those experiences. But he just realized life was... He he saw the simple, straightforward plot. It was to realize God. So he just walked away from everything else and sat down to meditate. And eventually, you know, he never took the initiative, but eventually he was discovered in the way these things happen. And eventually he went to the mountain of Shiva and just was there. Everything just built around him because... He had. He just stayed in that consciousness, and it magnetized everything to him. Which is really, again, directionally, what it is that we're trying to do. If we just stay in the right consciousness, everything will be magnetized to us. And I was talking earlier about what the right consciousness is. It's self-forgetfulness. It's devotion. Just love God. How can I serve? How can I love you? If we just stay there, then everything else naturally follows. We're so accustomed to thinking we have to run our own lives and we need to develop the willpower and the creativity to be able to run our own lives and then we have to do it really successfully so we can finally surrender it to God. Because you can't give it over as as a way of avoiding the effort of having to own it. You can't give somebody else's wallet away and actually get any benefit for that. So it's a tricky business because everything that gets you right to the point where you can, then just, it has to turn, it just has to turn like just a smidgen. Not very much. It's not like it's really that radical. Because if you're really good at what you're doing, if you've really put out the willpower to develop the capacity to have any mastery, and I don't mean that you have to be a great, great anything, but if you have any mastery, you realize that it's being done through you. Because you can just tell. If, if you're able to do anything, if you're sensitive at all, you realize it's being done through you. And when that thought begins to penetrate, that's when everything begins to turn. That's why I mean it's not such a big turn is that we think we're doing it ourselves, but we, if we're sensitive, we realize it's being done through us. You know, the, most of you were here 
for this incredible party that we had where just everything here was so um, beautifully put together. And I was talking to someone else about how it's done. And I said, well, it was art. It wasn't like they planned out, I'll put this here, I'll put this here, and here's the chart, and here's the graph, and here's the Google Doc, you know, with it all in those little squares like they do. I heard that phrase one more time. <laughs> but anyway, so it, you don't do that. You just pick up this beautiful thing and you set it down. And then you realize that that'll go pretty next to it, and then this will go pretty from the top. I mean, it talks to you, in other words. It just talks to you. And you, you move things around, and you're there, and you put out the energy to show up with all the stuff, and you had a few ideas that you're working with, but it talks to you. And so the, it, it, even if you have one experience where, where it talks to you, then all of a sudden you realize, what is the limit to it talking to me instead of me talking to it, if you know what I'm saying? Because anything that you create because it reveals itself to you. Even, I mean, a, a conversation, anything, where it reveals itself to you, just, um, it tells you that there's a potential that is so much more fun than this tiresome doing it myself all the time. It's just so exhausting to always be in charge. <gasps> Talk about fatigue and scary like really, really scary. When I was, uh, I was called to Stanford Hospital. This man, uh, let's see how this went. He was he was a very very successful man with lots of money, very sensual man. He was convinced the outer world wasn't worth going to because how could it be heaven without sex? It was just as simple as that. That's how he put it. But he said. Uh, but at the same time, he was a very powerful man. And he was running five miles a day and he had a pain in his back. So he went to the hospital and it turned out he had cancer all through him. But, you know, he discovered it because he couldn't run five miles without this pain in his back. So he goes to the hospital and he died two weeks later. Just immediately he went into some absolute freedom. He died in absolute freedom. So who's to say? You know, he was sensually involved. He loved his money. He spent it in all kinds of self-indulgent ways. But his response was, it's been a great run, is what he said. I've had a great time, you know. Now it's over. Far less attached than many people who lived completely differently. But what happened was, somehow or another, something happened and he ended up on life support. I, I, don't, I don't know how it all shifted so fast, but somehow it did. I guess he just got critical mass on whatever the cancer was doing. So he was on life support, and they decided they would take him off of life support at 3 p.m. on Tuesday. And they asked me to come. Okay. So I'm there, and he had been unconscious, but now he's wide awake. He's still on the machines. He's absolutely wide awake. He's perfectly cogent. And he knows that at 3 o'clock he's going to die. He was the only relaxed person in the room. Everyone else was so nervous. They were so nervous. Just the, um, the well, there was only the wife. She was a little frantic. And all the doctors and all the nurses, they were just so nervous. And they really wanted to sedate him. I tried to say... That I, I said, I said, look at him. He's perfectly calm. He doesn't need to be sedated. But then I looked at them, and I realized there was no chance. They had, 
they could take him off the machine without sedating him because they couldn't stand it. I, I've since come to appreciate that the soul is so far away from the body at such a moment that what you do to the brain doesn't have any effect on the soul. So I was trying to help him be conscious in his transition because this man is suddenly proving to be one of the better yogis I've ever met, you know, just in his detachment. But they, they couldn't deal with it. Now, what was I going to say about this? Why did I start this? Try to give me a clue. I think what I was talking about is just how different this world is. Oh, I know what it was. It was being in control. It was, I, I really felt badly for the doctors because they, you know, they're, they're totally in control until death comes and then they're just so out of control. I mean, like, so out of control after having to be so in control that it's a very disconcerting thing. You know, Shanti, who's here, I mean, she made a specialty of end-of-life care because she loved it. I mean, she was completely at ease with that whole flow. Unlike most doctors, she could just go there because she had both the medicine and the spirit to work with. But so the man, they sedated him, and then they took him off the machines, and in a couple of minutes he passed away. I said they sedated him, so he, they, they put him to sleep before they took him off the machines. And then, you know, he lasted two minutes. I mean, he just didn't have any body function at all. And it was actually, it was a really very beautiful passing. It's just quite, you just never know. You never know who we really are, what we're really doing. If you'd looked at his life, you would have expected anger, attachment, all sorts of things. And, and he didn't particularly believe in God or anything. His wife did, but just like so. I mean, that's, uh, it's, it's a question of control. That's what I was trying to say. At the very end, it all goes away from us. One of the wonderful uh, death stories, Stephen Levine, who wrote the first books on this, but decades ago, some of the first books, he said, all through our lives we are accustomed to adjusting our consciousness by doing something with our bodies. I'm lonely, I'll call a friend. I'm hungry, I'm going to open the refrigerator. I'm sleepy, I'm going to lie down. I'm feeling anxious, I'll turn on the television or I'll take a drug or I'll do something like that. You know, I'm restless, I'll go out for a walk. Something happens that makes our mind a little agitated we do something with our body. He said when you begin to die, especially if you're in bed for a long time, and this was his advice for this, you lose the capacity to do anything with your body. You just literally, you can't move it. One of my friends who was, uh, she died of cancer, she was at a very awkward angle on the pillow, and her friend said to her, you know, do you want to move your head back a little? She sort of looked up and said, you have no idea how much effort it would take me to move my head. It's just like, I can't do it anymore. It's nobody's responding. It's just not happening. And this other woman, I saw her just before she died, and just one arm was just completely independent. She was just laughing about it. It just, it, 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 she, life force had withdrawn. It goes back to the center. So you're there, and maybe you're just weak or you're hurt, but you still have the same problems of consciousness, but you cannot alleviate them through your body. And he talked about sometimes this panic sets in for people but he said if you can get through that mostly people suddenly surrender 
when they realize they really can't control it anymore, this other force comes in that says, you don't have to. But, but the phrase that he used, which I've always remembered, he said is, it's good to try to solve the problems of consciousness on the level of consciousness. Because if you always try to solve them on the level of the physical body, it's, it's a bad investment. Because sooner or later you won't be able to. What, I mean, old age, injury, illness, or, or death itself, something will take that away from you. And in the moment when it's happening, you don't remember the other moments. It's just this one. So that's what we're all working with. It's not that you can't use your body. We have it. We, it's given to us to use. But it's nice to try to calm yourself down before you take the action. Instead of always... And that's, again, that surrendering. That's just letting... God, I'm not in control. You know, what are we going to do? And letting it act through you and let it talk to you. All right. Is that enough for tonight? I think so. All right. See you next week. What month are we? Are we in February? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We did two or three. We did, we started at 279 and we went through 281.